Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Check podcast. You know what I'm about to say, and I know you don't want to hear it, but we need your support. The Tortoise Check is really struggling at the moment to keep the lights on, mics on, and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. We've no ads, we've no sponsors, we've no corporate interests, we have no sugar daddy. We rely entirely on you to keep it going. So if you're one of the thousands of people listening, please join us. Please come on board. Please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is the only way we can keep the show on the road. And it is the easiest bit of activism you can do. And we really appreciate every cent we get. There's no point sugarcoating it. We have had a terrible couple of weeks on the tortoise shack. We have thousands of additional listeners. But we're really struggling to make ends meet and keep this thing going. So if you value independent media, you have to pay for it. I'm sorry, I wish I had a different answer for you, but I do not want the Tortoise Shack to become a billboard for corporate interests, editorial control, and the type of crap that is now owned by basically two large companies in Ireland in terms of the podcast networks. And we just don't want to do that. It is not who we are, and it's not who I think you want to listen to. So do me a favor and click the link that says patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. I am shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Professor Shane Darcy, who is Deputy Director of the Irish Centre for Human Rights in the School of Law at NUI Galway. And he's taking part in an event in Maynooth this week, which is taking place on Wednesday, the 22nd of November. Um, and it's been organised by the Maynooth University Research Centre on Collective Punishment, Genocide and the Struggle for Justice in Palestine. Been organised well. Uh, by Minute Academics um, for Justice in Palestine, and which I'm part of, and encourage people uh, who aren't part to check it out, and all the uh, solidarity activity that is going on at the moment, so important. Um, Shane, Professor um, Shane Darcy is a researcher, experter in the area of international human, humanitarian law um, and international criminal law, business and human rights, and he's the um, author of a number of books, including Judges, Law and War, the Judicial Development of International Humanitarian Law. Uh, Shane, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today. Looking forward to this. Great. Thanks very much, Rory, for having me on. Um, Shane, maybe you could start by setting out um, your analysis of what is going on right now um, in Gaza, what Israel is doing in terms of international law and your analysis of that, because there's a lot of discussion at the moment around you know whether it's genocide or not and we've discussed it on the the podcast here um ethnic cleansing you know collective punishment um and you know we're obviously having this conversation in the context of you know the horrific massacres that are ongoing the bombings um and in some respects it's difficult to have this conversation in a sort of um you know without just expressing expressing utter frustration and sadness but in terms of that international um, law perspective, what would be your analysis of it? So, Rory, um, I noticed your byline for the podcast talks about solutions uh, and hope. Um, yeah. And looking at what's taking place in Gaza at the moment, it's really hard to talk about either either of those. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in terms of international law, there are so many issues arising that you, you need to unpack it and talk about different aspects to it. Um, there's almost hourly atrocities taking place, and it's actually hard to keep up with what's happening. Every time we look to our social media feed or to the news, there's some new atrocity, some family wiped out, some story about a, a child that's still held hostage, journalists being killed. So there's real problems about getting access to information. And of course, what's happening then is often being accompanied by more and more outrageous statements, particularly from Israeli officials about, about what's happening. Um, so in terms of the role of international law in this context, well, clearly from the outset, international law has failed here. Yeah. Uh, hasn't, it hasn't matched up to the rhetoric and the idealism that you see um, in the various international treaties that would be of relevance, whether that's the Charter of the United Nations, the Geneva Conventions on Protecting the Victims of War, the Genocide Convention that's effectively guided by the idea of, of never again, or the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that you know, was created with a view to deterring international crimes from taking place and holding individual perpetrators to account for them. So across the board, we see the idealism is not being matched up by, by the reality on the ground. Um, but I suppose from, from basic principles, it's the laws of war, international humanitarian law, that is the fundamental body of law that governs what's taking place at, at the moment in Gaza from the 7th of October 2023, but also before that, going back, going back many, many decades. Um, and international humanitarian law, the laws of war, it's one of the oldest, most well-established branches of international law that aims to sort of limit the suffering that happens during periods of conflict. The laws of war don't try and outlaw war, but they rather try to lessen the harm that victims of war would suffer, be it civilians, be it prisoners of war, uh, etc. And just to mention a few things about this body of law, I suppose one of the first things it applies to all parties. So it applies to the Israeli Defense Forces. It applies to, to Hamas fighters, the Al-Qassam Brigades. It applies to all parties, whether you're fighting a war of liberation, whether you're maintaining an occupation, etc. It doesn't discriminate between the parties, whether you're a state force or a, or a non-state force. It also applies irrespective of whether your opponent is observing it. So that you can't use the excuse, well, the opposite side isn't following these rules, therefore we're not going to be bound by them. One of the things to mention as well in the context of the laws of war is that we always, not always, but almost almost always or very regularly see parties will say, um, well, this isn't quite a war, or this isn't quite a conflict, or these rules don't fully apply here in various contexts. We've had this in the context of, of Israel and Palestine. So from back in 67, you know, Israel would deny that it was occupied territory, it's administered territory, um, or Gaza is not occupied territory. We've disengaged from there back in 2005. Therefore, we don't have control over the territory. Therefore, it's occupied. It's not occupied territory. But that, that actually has been rejected broadly by, by the international community. Um, but then the laws of war will be supplemented by international human rights law, but also by international criminal law, which I can talk about as well. Yeah, and just on, you know, it's something you've spoken about before and you wanted to comment on, which what's the Palestinian perspective and views on international law? Yeah, so, I mean, international law in the context of Palestine has been really engaged in the past two to three decades by particularly Palestinian human rights organizations. I mean, they've been to the fore at litigating, uh, at using the machinery of the United Nations to highlight 
their cases. And we see it still today. So there's an amazing speech by a Palestinian representative at the UN who talks about the centrality and the importance of placing international law in the centre of their struggle because it recognises things like the, the right to self-determination, etc. It protects civilians, it protects individuals during times of conflict. Um, and Palestinian NGOs like Al-Haq and others have been very, very active in recent years, whether it's going to the UN Human Rights Council or the various treaty bodies or to the International Criminal Court. Um, but the past few weeks have seen, I suppose, their, their faith in that system. If it wasn't already waning, certainly taking a, a significant, a significant battering because it hasn't, it hasn't lived up to what they've been expecting of it. They've seen the double standards, as we all have, where these institutions and these laws are are deemed applicable and relevant in certain instances, but but not in in others. Um, some of the organisations, Palestinian Centre for Human Rights, for example, have been campaigning the International Criminal Court to take action to move forward its investigation. Its director, Raji Sarani, um, his house was bombed a couple of weeks ago. He was pulled from the rubble, and his family. He survived, thankfully. Um, but if your faith in international law wasn't tested in that context, I don't know when it would be. Um, Atta Hindi, who's a Palestinian scholar, recently wrote that, that international law is dead in this context. So I think there's a, a they haven't abandoned it, the Palestinian NGOs that work in this area, but certainly their faith is sorely tested um, and its limitations are becoming becoming more apparent. And and that is that question that, you know, is international law essentially defunct at this point if we look at what Israel are doing? I mean, I think international law has a role to play in this context. There's no question about it. Um, at the very least, it gives us a language to describe what is taking place and to identify what are the legal standards that, if they're not being abided by in this context, certainly should be abided by. And failure to do so can have international consequences, whether it's for individuals military commanders, political officials, etc., or for the state itself. And I suspect that we will see accountability coming, not tomorrow, not next week, but, but in the future. Um, and we've seen civil society, we've seen lawyers, we've seen activists, we've seen politicians slowly but surely um, begin to use the language of international law, so describing particular practices as collective punishment as a war crime, etc. So it does give us that important, important language. And even though I just mentioned that you've got various organizations that are are losing faith, that they're still using the machinery. They're still um, campaigning. They're still resorting to international machinery and fora to try and have their case made, to try and have effectively an end to the atrocities that we see. Yeah, and I do think, you know, when we're looking at what, um, in terms of the United Nations, for example, the United Nations refugee agencies, the work being done, it is playing, I think, quite an important role. Um, Antonio Gut Guterres, just even naming it and, and being the sole international voice that is actually um, calling for a ceasefire. It's really incredible, but it shows at a level the importance of that infrastructure, weak and all as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've seen individual pockets of um, organizations standing up for, for what is right and what is needed and for international law standards. But then when we see, when we look at the, the General Assembly and the Security Council, it really is so disappointing that they cannot even agree on things like a ceasefire, that we have things like humanitarian pauses, 
Uh, and this is, I can't even remember the, the days now, or 50 days or so into what's been, been happening at this level, this level of intensity. Yeah. And, and like we're seeing UN schools being bombed, you know what I mean, that are housing um, people, you know, who've been gone from the South, like refugees of, of within, you know, refugees who were refugees now going to schools, you know, now moving South, being bombed as well, that it really feels that just an utter powerlessness, sense of powerlessness that the international community um, who believe in human rights and, and, you know, we're seeing obviously people you know, across the world protesting around that, asserting that it seems to be the public, whereas it is the public, whereas our governments, many of our governments are just really reluctant to use. And maybe you could describe maybe some of the things they could be doing. Um, for example, Ireland and the International Criminal Court and, you know, what other things could governments like Ireland um, be doing that would actually be pressuring Israel more? Yes. Or at least, you know, holding them to account, as you say, and trying to stop it. Yeah, so I do think you're right that there is, there is a sense that the governments are out of step with what the public are calling for in, in many countries. Yeah. Uh, as you've mentioned, um, where we have massive protests, not just one-off, but kind of weekly and, and repeated. And the protests, you know, we see them being denigrated, being dismissed by, by individuals. I saw one Israeli spokesperson refer to a massive protest in London um, and use the, f- the phrase rape apologists to describe the people participating in that protest, which is truly, which is truly horrendous. Yeah. And what can governments be doing? I mean, we're in the, I wouldn't say completely unusual situation, but Ireland has been quite to the fore in this context. I saw a comment recently, someone saying no Western government has called for a ceasefire. Well, I actually think Ireland... Ireland has and has been to the fore in this respect. Um, what can Ireland could be doing more? Um, so in terms of the legal machinery that we have uh, in place, we are seeing a number of innovative strategies being deployed, whether it's by civil society organisations and some states to try and push for accountability, to try and push for an end to, to what's taking place. And you mentioned, Rory, the, the International Criminal Court. So the International Criminal Court is the world's permanent international court. It, it sits in The Hague. It has jurisdiction over 124 countries. It deals with war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide uh, and aggression. Um, and it has been confronted by the situation in Palestine for a number of years. So it's since 2009, the then government of Palestine called for the court to, to take action. The state of Palestine ratified or became a party to the statute, I should say, in 2015, refer the situation in 2018, and then an investigation was commenced by the then prosecutor in 2021. So the prosecutor has jurisdiction over what's taking place on the territory of Palestine, West Bank, and Gaza, and East Jerusalem. And as Kareem Khan confirmed when he visited Rafah um, 10, days or, 10 days ago or so, he also has jurisdiction over any crimes perpetrated by Palestinian nationals on the territory of Israel even if Israel is not a state party. So what Hamas did, or Al-Qassam and the other Palestinian uh, armed factions that were involved, what they did on the 7th of October, large-scale killing of civilians, um, as well as taking of hostages, they fall within the jurisdiction of the court, as does what's happening now uh, in Gaza. But for the International Criminal Court, it's the prosecutor that has the power effectively to go ahead and issue uh, and seek arrest warrants. Um, 
we saw this discussion in the in the Irish, uh, in the Oireachtas, in the Dáil recently about Ireland referring the situation to the court. Um, Palestine did that back in 2018. So the investigation is actually open. So legally, it wouldn't have mattered in any great way had Ireland decided to refer the situation. The court already had jurisdiction, but it would have been very politically and symbolically important to demonstrate like 40 or so states did in the context of Ukraine, saying, we want you to investigate here. Now, in Ukraine, it was slightly different because Ukraine is not a party to the statute, unlike the state of Palestine. Therefore, there were these extra procedural hurdles that needed to be overcome. By all those states referring it, it meant the prosecutor could avoid certain procedural obstacles, which he was able to do. But in the context of Palestine, we actually have seen in the past few days five states led by South Africa referring the situation to the International Criminal Court, saying, you know, we would like you to investigate what's been taking place. Um, now, the prosecutor has said he's investigating. He said he's an active investigation on the way. Palestinian NGOs and others, observers will say, you need to move faster. You've had this investigation for a couple of years prior to these current events. Um, and the International Criminal Court has been something of a cold house for the Palestinians, it hasn't moved things forward as well as it should do. So what could Ireland be doing? Well, one of the things is to resource the court. The court has a limited number of resources, as the prosecutor keeps telling us, and it needs additional resources to, in order to investigate and advance. I mean, I think Ireland could easily join the state referral that's already been made. It could push for other states to do so. And it has committed to giving resources to the court in this context. Now, I haven't seen exactly, it hasn't announced how much exactly, but it has talked about doing so because the, having an independent investigation of what's happening is, is really critical to get to the truth of what is taking place, but also to provide a modicum of justice and accountability for the victims in this context. Just can I make one quick point? The, the reference you referenced the spokesperson who I, I think it's important to say this. You referenced the spokesperson for the Israeli government who 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 called the people in London marching rape apologists. That gentleman was hosted on RT News less than a week ago. Um, he's also he's also disseminated false information himself, where uh, where by stuff that has been fact checked by other journalists that was shown to be incorrect in in relation to what happened at during Ham um, the Hamas abhorrent attacks on October seventh. But he literally overstated things that were disproven. And has been on our national broadcaster. I think that's important to, to, to add that caveat because we need to be very clear on this, that there is also a war of misinformation, disinformation and, and propaganda as well. I, I, I promise, Shane, I'm going to stay out of it now. But I just find, you know, when you mentioned that individual, there are there are bad faith actors on all sides as usual, but but some of them are within governments, you know. And, and just to yeah, respond to that, Shane, I think it's a really important point because it does raise the question of, kind of government's reluctance to react when they're faced with this almost wall of propaganda and and you know the claims by Israel that we're seeing you know that they're they're you know claim you know, all sorts of claims being made that makes it difficult but then governments do have to kind of stand um with the truth as we know it as well and that's difficult isn't it yeah certainly and i think it's the, the problem in this context is uh there is disinformation there is deflection, uh, but also there's deliberate, it seems, targeting of journalists. There's deliberate denial of access of journalists to Gaza. Um, 
So you see the BBC and others being embedded with the Israeli Defence Forces. Uh, and one of the journalists commented that he was in one of the hospitals with the IDF, but he wasn't permitted to speak to the doctors who, in some instances, were only metres away from him. Um, so the problem is we have a, a, a problem around getting access to, to accurate information. Um, but we do have... Sorry, Shane, I, Shane, can I push in and say I completely disagree with what you're saying because if I can get in touch with people inside Al Chifa Hospital... So can RTE, so can BBC, so can Fox News. They just don't bother their holes. Excuse me, they just don't because they're embedded. And then when you're embedded, you accept three rules. You will only go to the certain area. You'll only, you'll, only, you'll only film when you're told you can film. And you'll only talk to who you're going to talk to. Yet in every day since this kicked off, I've been able to get people within Al-Shifa Hospital, within the Al-Shati camp, within all other areas. So there's a laziness that suits Western journalists. I'm sorry, I'm Rory. You know, is it you're, not, you're, Tony, Tony, just to say, I, I think you're right, but it, is it not, not laziness? Is it not that they're accepting the controls been no, put on them? No, I don't, I, I don't accept that for a moment. I think they're absolutely... No, they can certainly speak to people in Gaza. And we have seen Al Jazeera and others have journalists on the ground. Um, but I think there is a controlling of the narrative as well that that people aren't being given access. That's that should be that, that's 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 absolutely fair. But we look at Al Shifa Hospital as the biggest example of you know of false. Like they put up a graphic to show this this bunker command and control center that was below the ground. That's not there. They've been there since last Wednesday. They have all they've shown us is, is videos where they've planted. We've so we're, we're even even BBC put up a, a video to say, well, when they showed the video earlier, there was no guns. Now there's guns. You know, we've seen this. There's evidence been planted, and I put I just can't tolerate the idea that if me in this tiny little room in the side on the side of a house in Ballymun can 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 get access to people who will who will speak from the, from Gaza. And they and then they have to go through and, and actually fulfil this embedded criteria. Like again, this 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 started if you remember the first Gulf War where they were embedded, so journalists were embedded, and it just became such a problem that it became to the point where I mean the likes of Robert Fisk refused to wear helmets and stuff like that because they said no, that will just that will actually that means I'm actually with these people, and this is where it's wrong. So, so I, I do think, and Rory, I, and Rory, I, I, I disagree with you totally. They are lazy. They're, they're actually not doing their jobs. If, if I can do it from here, anybody can do it. And I, I just find it absolutely disgusting that we're here in 2023 and buying e-sims for journalists in Gaza, and there are journalists with, with production companies, with producers, with directors, and with all the means, and they done, to my mind, sweet fuck all. Apologies for my language. Well, I think the big difference between now and the Gulf War, thankfully, is that we do have, we're able to get access to people um, via social media, via other, so we, we don't have an information blackout. I think that's that's critical. Um, why we don't have certain mainstream journalists on the ground, because for, for the reasons we've been discussing, we don't have an information blackout. Um, but I, I still think um, there is a, an element of, you know, as you say, there's a disinformation war taking place, and that that can be problematic. And what I've been talking about already from the International Criminal Court perspective, one of the issues about access is to gather evidence. And the International Criminal Court staff have not been allowed to enter into Israel and Palestine. Likewise, successive UN special rapporteurs on, on human rights, they've not been allowed to gain access to either the West Bank or to Gaza. And I think that is also deeply, deeply problematic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think just to, to, in terms of the International Criminal Court, does it have, like, what power would it have 
if it found, you're saying to issue arrest warrants, for example, like what could it do if it acted quickly and if it found Israel to be committing, which seems obvious, they are war crimes? Yeah, so the International Criminal Court is focused, can focus only on individuals. So it can only prosecute individuals crimes that are taking place. Um, and there's no question since 2001 and its jurisdiction is, the investigation is active since then and, and over the past few weeks, we've seen um, we've seen incidents that would easily, in my view, amount to, to war crimes. We can talk about displacement of the population. We can talk about attacks on civilian objects. We can talk about hostage-taking, attacks on and killing of civilians, etc. Crimes against humanity, uh, likewise. So what the power of the ICC is, is to, once the investigation has, has moved to a certain stage and the, the prosecutor is confident um, that he will achieve an arrest warrant from a what's called a pretrial chamber, he can seek permission for them to, to issue those arrest warrants. And then they, they can do so secretly or they can name individuals. And to have high-ranking individuals named uh, as being the subject of arrest warrants, I think is very, very significant from an international institution. It shows that this independent body has recognized that there are serious violations of international law taking place, and these particular individuals we consider to be responsible for them. Um, so we have seen the ICC over its life, which is now in its, in its third decade, indict heads of state, President al-Bashir of, of Darfur, an indictment and an arrest warrant issued for Vladimir Putin in relation to the activities in Ukraine that was issued in on 17th of March, um, 2023. Um, and those carry significant weight. It's showing that court has supported the prosecutor's belief that there's a reasonable basis to believe that this individual is responsible for crimes within the jurisdiction of the court. Now we have those arrest warrants that I've mentioned are outstanding, as in neither Putin nor al-Bashir have appeared before the, before the court, but quite a few others have. Um, but very often they've been from Situation countries in Africa, um, sometimes they've been from non-state actors, so not state forces, but rather rebel groups or others. Um, and there is this perception that the court has only gone after softer targets. The prosecutor, the current prosecutor, had an investigation ongoing in Afghanistan. It's still ongoing, but he's changed the focus to not focus on NATO members, but rather to look more at al-Qaeda and Taliban. Offenses. There was an investigation into British forces in Iraq. You know, a couple of years ago, that preliminary examination was was closed down by the previous prosecutor, despite there having only been, you know, I think one prosecution for a British soldier for for war crimes in Iraq. Um, but there is great symbolic value in and of itself to those arrest warrants being issued, and the idea would be that it would deter crimes from taking place and, in due course, ideally deliver justice for victims. And in your analysis. Uh, what is that the most that we can try and achieve in terms of international human rights? Or is there more, like, for example, I don't know, is there other processes that can be pursued and the public should be pressuring for to um, hold Israel account and to get justice? Yeah, so, I mean, from the, from the international legal perspective, uh, I mean, we see the various mechanisms within the United Nations. We have the Human Rights Council, um, we have various UN treaty bodies, and I'm pretty sure that the various NGOs will be petitioning those bodies, um, outlining what's taking place, seeking them to, to condemn the activities or to issue findings in this particular context. 
We have a group of UN special rapporteurs. So you spoke with, with Mary Lawler, uh, in, and, and they've been very active. Um, there are independent observers, experts who are, who are calling out the activities as they see them. And they're using language that they have been very, that they haven't used before in this context. So Francesca Albanese talked about a risk of ethnic cleansing, and that was about three or four weeks ago. And then in the past 10 days or so, we've seen a group of special rapporteurs use the phrase genocide and talk about a risk of genocide taking place. Uh, and to my knowledge, that's, that, that is not language that United Nations bodies have used in the context of Palestine previously. Um, so we see the invocation of, of genocide as something demonstrating the seriousness with which these UN organizations view what's taking place. And that genocide has a, has a very distinct legal meaning within international law. It's set out in a convention from 1948. But that convention is about not just prosecuting the crime of genocide, but also preventing it from taking place. And this, I think, is where states have a real responsibility to take measures within their power to prevent the, the crime of genocide from taking place. Um, there's also an opportunity to go to the International Court of Justice. Um, Palestine is a, has uh, accepted the jurisdiction of this particular court, as has Israel, via the, the Genocide Convention. And I've heard talk that states may be looking to go to the International Court of Justice in relation to in relation to what's taking place. We've seen Russia and Ukraine debating issues of genocide at the International Court of Justice. Likewise, Myanmar has been taken to the ICJ by the Gambia on behalf of numerous other countries because of its treatment of the Rohingya, which they allege is, is also genocide. So that's, that's one avenue that um, states are being increasingly put under pressure to invoke that machinery in order to prevent genocide from taking place. Could Ireland play a role in doing that? Could Ireland do? I mean, Ireland is a state party to the um, the UN Charter. It has accepted the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. It's a party to the Genocide Convention. And we, we treat genocide and the prohibition of it as, without getting too legalistic, an erga omnes obligation, something that all states have an interest and a responsibility to make sure is upheld. And certainly Ireland could do so, as has happened in the case of Gambia, and Myanmar, because of course the Rohingya are not not from the Gambia, but Gambia is taking the case on that basis that putting an end or preventing the side is an issue. All states have an interest have an interest in. And and just for uh, listeners who mightn't be as familiar, the difference between the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice, you might explain. Yeah, so both of them sit in the Hague. Uh, the International Court of Justice is an interstate court. So it's where states can take other states uh, to court over boundary disputes, things like that. Um, we've seen Palestine come before the court in a couple of instances. We had the famous advisory opinion from 2004 on the legality of the wall that was constructed within and along the Green Line. And uh, that was an advisory opinion. So it wasn't a contentious case between Israel and Palestine, but rather the court was asked to give its legal opinion on the legality of this particular of this particular measure. Um, but we have seen genocide addressed at the court. Bosnia took Serbia to the International Court of Justice. And as I mentioned, Ukraine and Russia are before the court as well. The International Criminal Court then is a court that deals only with individuals. It can only prosecute 
individuals before that particular court also sitting in the Hague. Um, it's, you know, it's a relatively new kid on the block. It's 25 years old compared to the ICJ, which is around for, for 75 years or more. So it seems, uh, to me anyway, that that's something that we could be requesting the Irish government to do, to take Israel to the International Court of Justice for committing acts of genocide, for pre- pre- to prevent genocide? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I haven't seen Ireland use the phrase genocide um, in relation to what's happening now. I have been kind of tracking it over over recent weeks. We've seen the state of Palestine describe what's happening as, as genocidal. We've seen a half a dozen Latin American countries, South Africa. We had a French, I uh, beg your pardon, a Spanish minister use the term as well. Uh, and the organization of the Islamic Conference, which represents you know several dozen countries, have used that phrase uh, as well. There is something of a reluctance to use the term genocide to describe events that are taking place, whether in Gaza or or elsewhere, because it's it's considered a particularly serious international crime. It's been described as the crime of crimes. Um, and actually, we have seen difficulties at the International Criminal Court. It hasn't been prosecuted. There's only one arrest warrant for the crime of genocide, and that's in relation to Darfur, Sudan. So prosecutors, certainly at the ICC, have tended to to steer away from it. But we have seen other cases in relation to Rwanda but, and Yugoslavia. Yeah. But if what you're saying there, that it's very clear, you know, and I've had, you know, United Nations, as you mentioned there, the rapporteurs on human rights defenders, on, on adequate housing, referring to this as possibly genocide and most definitely at risk of genocide, that there is a role that um, clearly the Irish government could bring Israel to the International Court um, of Justice on the basis of the, f- the risk to try and prevent genocide. Yeah, and we saw this. There was a, a letter from, I think, 180 Irish lawyers in the Irish Examiner at the weekend, and they, they specifically invoked the Genocide Convention. They said two things. One, uh, to consider whether there's a role for the International Court of Justice in this context. And the second one was to go to the political machinery of the United Nations, and that's provided for in the Genocide Convention, saying, you know, we are asking you to, to look at this this situation. In the US, we've seen cases taking suing effectively Joe Biden and um, and others based on the risk of genocide taking place uh, and then not fulfilling their obligations. And in fact, in fact, doing the opposite, being, being complicit in. Uh, just I'm thinking through in terms of for, you know, the, the Irish public and, you know, myself and many others who, who feel, as I said earlier, so powerless in terms of what we can actually do. And, you know, there is, as you said, the sense that, OK, the Irish government is speaking up, you know, more than other countries. But if there is things that we could be doing that would be quite significant and symbolic, then I think, you know, that's if that's something that we could be doing, we should let people know this is what the, our government could be doing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the states often hold the keys in in certain instances. Now, not in the context of the International Criminal Court. It's the prosecutor that kind of holds the key to advancing on that side of thing. But the International Court of Justice is an interstate mechanism. So, yeah, I mean, I think if Ireland were were open to doing so, again, these sort of these sort of efforts, there's more strength in in a collective in a collective approach than individual states doing so. But certainly, uh, I think. We seem to have just lost Shane there. Um, really, I think really important uh, stuff, really 
around that idea of referring uh, Ireland taking Israel to the International Court of Justice. I think that's something we should uh, pressure and raise. Um, and again, just the horrific, the horrific war crimes that are that are ongoing right now. Um, and as I said, Shane is speaking in Minute uh, to Minute Academics for Justice in Palestine um, this coming Wednesday. And you can also check out as well. Um, there's an event, the um, Frederick Douglass Frederick Douglass Rights um, Rights Civil Rights Festival in Wexford is taking place on the weekend of the 25th and uh, Fatin, Fatin Al-Tamimi is speaking on the Friday evening uh, as the keynote um, and Senator with friend with Senator Francis Black. Listen, um, thank you so much everyone for listening and for continuing to support us. Uh, we are Independent Media produced by Tortoise Shack um, Tony Groves doing the work there. If you can, um, please become a patron. Keep the lights on. Um, Tony has been doing incredible work around Palestine and bringing the the voices of Palestinians directly, which, as he said earlier, um, our mainstream media really should be doing uh, so much more and that um, analysis of what is actually going on. And listen, we've had lots of feedback as well. From the recent podcast, just people find them very engaging um, and interesting and informative, and also around the housing event that we had last week, which was um, very, very powerful and inspiring, and that will be going out um, as podcasts in the coming weeks, uh, and we do have then the live uh, Reboot Republic in the Teachers Club on December the 13th. Um, fundraising for Gaza and discussions around housing and mental health um, and more. Listen, thank you so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you very soon. 